Well, if, um, if I come across this morning a little bit as jittery and lacking self-confidence, can you guys not hear me? I have this thing on. I'm pretty sure I hear feedback. Okay. So yeah, if I'm a little jittery or lacking self-confidence, it has to do with my son. <laughs> I, last, yesterday, uh, last week when uh, Ralph was preaching, Tiago actually asked me, he says, is it okay if I don't go to children's church and if I stay? I said, sure, that's fine. So he stayed in church with us and uh, actually he behaved fairly well. So I said, hey, Tiago, I'm preaching this week. You want to stay in children's church? <laughs> if you want to stay in church? Like, no. <laughs> says, why? He said, Dad, Mr. Rolf is funny. <laughs> so, now, if you talk to him, he will tell you that he wanted to stay this morning, but that is only because he knows that I put a couple of stories about him in my sermon, and he wanted to know what it was about. But there are a couple of pieces of scripture that I rather do not preach on. I mean, sometimes I don't like to preach on passages that I don't fully understand myself. And that happens. It's actually one of the reasons why I enjoy teaching Sunday school here every, every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. Because I get to ask questions and I have you struggle coming up with the answers. Sometimes I'm having difficulties preaching on a certain text because the issues that are being raised in the text are not very comfortable. They're not politically or cultural correct. They confront us where we don't want to be confronted. And that makes me, most of the time, the bearer of bad news or the messenger of bad news. And I know that sometimes after these kind of sermons, some of you would like to shoot the messenger. And I'm telling you, that is not a very comfortable position to be in. Neither one of these two reasons is the reason, is not, is the reason why I was not looking forward to preaching on Psalm 130, which is what we'll be covering today. So if you want to read along later on, take, take some time, open up your Bibles. Uh, we will eventually get there. But this time, my hesitancy came from the subject itself. But before I get into this, I want to start with a short history lesson. Those for you who have not noticed yet, this year we have been aligning ourselves with the broader Protestant church by following the ebbs and flows of the revised common lectionary. Depending on the denomination that you might have been part of in your upbringing or during your life, you might or you might not be familiar with the Revised Common Lectionary. But the Revised Common Lectionary is a three-year cycle of weekly lections or readings that are built around the seasons of the church. Each year starts on the first Sunday of Advent. So now, besides our common new year, our church new year, we just started, the Chinese New Year, you have another New Year to celebrate. The RCL includes four lections each Sunday, as well as some additional readings for special feast days. During most of the year, the lections are a reading from the Hebrew Bible, 
me question you a little bit. Which one did we read today? Ezekiel 37. A gospel reading. John 11, I think. A psalm, 130, on which I will be preaching. And a reading from the epistle. In this case, it was Romans 6. Now, the lectionary was made up or was put together by 40, over 40 denominations from at least six different countries, from the United Church of Canada and the Unitarian Universalist to the Church of England and everything in between. Now, the truth is that the lectionary is most commonly used in what some people refer to as high churches. Churches that put emphasis on rituals, on liturgy, and on structured services. So for those of you in the audience that have an Episcopalian background, a Lutheran background, an Anglican background, or a Presbyterian background, you are probably very familiar with this lectionary. And for some of you, it might even be music to your ears. The common lectionary is not that old. It's been around since 1983, and it was revised in 1992. Although lectionaries have been around for centuries. Now, I would argue that a lot of Protestant denominations, especially um, evangelical ones, ourselves included, denominations that traditionally have shied away from anything that had anything to do with high church, have rediscovered the value of rhythm and the value and the importance of seasons in the life of a believer. And the significance of tying the Old Testament together with the New Testament by the gospel and the epistles and prayers. And the importance of preparing one's heart for seasons and holidays like Easter and Christmas. So a couple of years ago, we started with the intentional participation in seasons like Lent and Advent. And this year, Pastor James has made the jump into a full year cycle. Now, I am not sure if we'll be doing this again next year, if he's going to take us through all three years. But if we just stick even to one year, I personally see the value of experiencing the RCL at least once. So currently we are in the season of Lent. We've talked a lot about it. It's symbolized by the purple cloth on the cross. The season of Lent starts with Ash Wednesday and goes on till Easter. Now the focus of this season is a preparation for the death and the resurrection of Jesus our Lord and Savior who brings redemption. Now, the reality is that a Savior saves us from something. And the saving us from something is a very significant part of the Lenten season. Because it helps us focus on those things that we need to be saved from. Sin, sickness, brokenness, Corruption, suffering, ourselves, death. And because of that, the season of Lent feels to me at least, maybe to some of you as well, as a deliberate descent into the miry clay. 
Or as some of you might say, this is the season of Debbie Downer. <laughs> because what we're doing year after year is we purposely walking into the tunnel to rediscover the light at the end of it time and time again. You see, this for me is one of the most important parts, or perhaps even the most important part of Lent. Because if we don't go back regularly to that which Jesus saved us from, when we are not repeatedly reminded that of the depth of our brokenness and the gravity of our sin, we tend to forget. And when we forget, we devalue the real meaning of Easter and what Jesus has done for us. When we forget how broken we really are and how sinful we really are, we end up in a place that Dietrich Bonhoeffer called a religion of cheap grace. That's the grace that we bestow on ourselves. You see, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It is baptism without church discipline. It is communion without confession. It is Easter without Lent. You see, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, a grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. You see, I tend to do that. I tend to do that. I tend to minimize my sinfulness and overestimate my righteousness. You see, in survey after survey, over 80% of the drivers on the road feel that they drive better than the other people on the road. <laughs> now, obviously we know that this is mathematically incorrect, right? But I am also speaking from practical experience. I am not seeing it. Every time I drive, I think I am the only reasonable driver on the road. I am not finding the other good ones. <laughs> the problem is that this way of thinking trans oft translates often into our faith walk as well. We often overestimate our righteousness and underestimate our sinfulness. You see, we often see the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18 as a story about opposites, in which the self-righteous Pharisee stands up there and prays, thank you, Lord, that I am not like them. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector right next to me. And on the other hand, we have the tax collector, right? Praying, beating his chest, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. The reality is that these are opposites for sure. However, however, it is very well possible to move from a tax collector mindset to a Pharisee mindset. How much are sure about that? happened to me. One of the hardest things for me in becoming a Christian 
was to admit that as I was a sinner. As a matter of fact, I think I called myself a Christian for a couple of years before I ever settled the issue of sin. When I finally came to the point where I did, when I acknowledged the depth of my sinfulness and my last wall truly crumbled, it felt not only really good, like a lift was like a weight was lifted off my shoulders, it all, like a cleansing by the Holy Spirit. It, it, it felt like a true sense of liberation, but over time, I became comfortable with my salvation. And I felt entitled to grace and God's mercy. You see, I caught myself... When God wanted to deal with things in my life that I would look around this church. Most people have gone. Some of you are still here. But I would look around this church and I would say, God, why are you bothering me? You know that he is living with somebody who shouldn't be, right? You know that she is claiming to be free of addiction, but we know better than that. One just for young parents in the audience. Often, after, ever since we introduced our son, Tiago, there's this one, he will come back again. But ever, we, ever, ever, we, ever since we turned, uh, turned our son, Tiago, on to the concept of grace, we were doomed. Now, I, I know that all Christian books on parenting have at least one chapter about grace. And most of the time they tell you that at some point when they do something wrong and they really deserve punishment, that you should not punish them, but grace them. I mean, if you really want to extend the show and tell in this, what you really should do is take the punishment for them and turn this truly into a show and tell about the grace that God has bestowed on us all. Let me tell you, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't, don't fall for it. I mean, ever since that lesson, Tiago expects grace. As a matter of fact, he sometimes demands grace. You see, I'm glad that you're laughing, because the reality is that most of us are dealing with our Heavenly Father that way. I mean, this is a very, very dangerous spiritual place to be. And because of that, I need Lent. And because of that, I would argue that you need Lent. And I think it is safe to say, to make the statement that the longer you have been a Christian, the more you need Lent so that we might come back time and time again to the declaration of Psalm 40, verse 2. Let's, let's read this together. He lifted me out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. You see, Psalm 130, which we'll be reading as part of the RCL, in this time of Lent, just uh, does just that. It takes us right to the heart of the season. Now, you have already um, 
stood for Bible readings, you've already said, thanks be to God. I don't want to continue with the jumping jacks for you, so you can remain seated because I'm actually going to slice this uh, psalm in a couple of, uh, actually in two parts. But let me start with the first three verses. From the depths of despair, O Lord, I cry for your help. Hear my cry, O Lord, pay attention to my prayer. Lord, if you kept a record of our sin, who, O Lord, could ever survive? You see, Psalm 130 shoots right off the gates. There is no easing in here. From the depths of despair, this poem or this prayer is written. The hopelessness, the misery, and the anguish are dripping from this page, and they hit you right between your eyes. And that is the reality why I was not really looking forward to preach on this psalm. Although I'm definitely not a happy-go-lucky kind of guy, the rawness, the desolation, and the abandonment that this author is expressing is not just uncomfortable, it is difficult for me to wrap my head around. You see, I have not been there, nor done that yet. And because of that, I feel inadequate to be preaching on it. You see, I like to take you to places where I have been myself. And this is not one of them. I mean, preaching on this psalm feels a little bit to me like teaching Messi how to play soccer, or Rembrandt how to paint, or Rachel Ray how to cook. But I am sure that there will be a time in my life where I will find myself at the same place as the writer. At the same place where some of you have already been. At the same place where some of you are right now. You see, because for some of you here this morning, this is the reality. You feel just like the author of this psalm. The weight of life has crushed you down and you are barely able to get from underneath it. Loneliness, anguish, helplessness, and despair are not mere concepts for you. You are living it. You see, some, perhaps you're going through a depression in which the clouds seem to get darker and darker each day and in the morning you can no longer find a reason to even get out of bed. And nobody seems to understand you. See, maybe you're dealing with terminal illness. Unsure if life will ever be the same for you again. And pain and fright have become the new norms in your life. Perhaps even worse, it's not you who that's terminal ill, but it's somebody that you deeply love spouse, a child, parent. And all that you can do is watch, unable to help, incapable to lighten the burden, and powerless to alleviate the pain and suffering of your loved one. 
some of you have dealt with abuse. Or you have been mistreated or violated by those who were supposed to look after you. Some of you come to church by yourself week after week. Your spouse or your children have checked out. Determined that there is no place for God in their lives. Or that he is simply not high enough of a priority. And you are worried. Not just for their well-being here on planet Earth. But for their eternal well-being. You see, suffering is part of the broken world we live in. The psalmist does not sugarcoat this. As a matter of fact, by putting his anguish out in the open and voicing it as a prayer, the psalm gives dignity and validation to our suffering, which in this country truly is a breath of fresh air. Because as Ivan Illich says, there is an American myth that denies suffering and a sense of pain. So the psalmist acknowledges in all honesty that pain and suffering and desperation are real emotions, even in the life of a believer. So what to do with it? Let's pick up the last verses. But you offer forgiveness that we might learn to fear you. I am counting on the Lord. Yes, I am counting on Him. I have put my hope in His Word. I long for the Lord more than centuries long for the dawn. Yes, more than centuries long for the dawn. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is unfailing love. His redemption overflows. And he himself will redeem Israel from every kind of sin. The first couple of times I read the second part of this psalm, I was frustrated and I was disappointed. I was hoping to offer those of you who are finding themselves in a place of suffering an insight. I was hoping to find an insight, an understanding, a response that somehow would make sense. That would answer questions like, why is this happening to me? Why now? What am I supposed to learn in the midst of this God? And what's the meaning of this all? Because that's what we want, right? That's, that's what I want. I want to make sense out of things. I want to believe that suffering somehow serves a higher purpose. That suffering is a puzzle that needs to be explained and put back together. But the reality is that this psalm does not offer us such a thing. It does not deny nor does it explain suffering. What it does is it models to us to face suffering with faith and not to avoid it out of fright. To face it with faith and not to avoid it out of fright. Its repeated advice is to wait. Did you catch that three times? Wait. Not to casually pass time, not to play hooky, 
not to stick your head in the sand long enough, hoping that when we ignore our predicament, it somehow will pass by. The psalmist invites us, or perhaps better said, the psalmist urges us to wait with intention, to wait with our whole being, to wait more for the Lord than night guards wait for the morning, to wait with hope and to wait with anticipation. Sounds like strange advice, doesn't it? I mean, really, is this even advice? And, and if it isn't, then, then really, how, how do we do this? A couple of years ago, Tara, came, Rem, Rem, Tara, who is our daughter, came running into the house. And she said, Tiago is in trouble. Tiago is in trouble, third time. <laughs> He's really missing out. Better record it so he can play it back because he was bummed. But anyway, we run out of the house, and there we find Tiago dangling upside down in our yacaranda tree. Now, apparently, he had tried to climb the tree, and things had not gone as he planned. I, in all reality, I don't even know if he planned anything, but they didn't turn out quite the way that I think he had hoped for. He had fallen, or he had slipped, I don't even know, but either way, he was on his way down. And a branch had caught him by his shorts. <laughs> and he was dangling upside down. So the only thing that prevented him from crashing down face first was a small piece of fabric. Tiago, however, in a desperate attempt to free himself, was really busy trying to unbuckle his pants. <laughs> Which, if he would have succeeded, would not only mean that he would have fallen face down 10 feet, but he would have done so without his pants on. <laughs> you see, what Tiago should have done was to cry and shout for help and to wait. We so often do the very same thing that Tiago did. And in our attempts to save ourselves, we end up crashing to the ground, broken and naked. And why? Why? Why would we do such a thing when we have a heavenly Father that has an unfailing love for us and who wants nothing more than to save us? His redemption overflows, the psalmist writes, this morning, I want to end with the acknowledgement that some of the suffering we found ourselves in is the result of our own sinfulness. This is not always the case. There are medical conditions. There are things that just happen to you while you find yourself in a place of suffering. But sometimes the place of suffering we find ourselves is the result of our own sinfulness. I have to say that I think that this is the case for the author of the psalm because he mentioned this three times in eight verses. Personally, I am haunted by the image of verse 3. I can picture God standing there in front of a whiteboard or a flip chart writing down my sins. 
I don't even know if my sins fit on one page. And it keeps getting longer and longer and longer. And it continues and it continues. See, the reality is I have tried to erase that list. I have taken an eraser. I have gone at it. I'm sure I'm not the only one. But no matter how hard I try to erase that list, the list remains. Oh, I covered up my sins. I've tried that. I have tried to hit them, to hide them. Sorry. I've tried to explain them. I've tried to justify them. There are some things on that list that I, ever, that I have even fought with God over. The psalmist reminds us that nobody can stand. Nobody can stand. Whether that list is long or short, whether it's shorter and better than the person sitting next to you or not, whether you agree with everything on that list or you don't, the ultimate result is that this list will weigh you down. So if you have not dealt with that list, there will come a time when the only thing you can do is what the author of Psalm 130 did, to cry out in despair, to plead for God to listen to you, and to cry for mercy. So advice, my advice to you this morning is to settle this sooner rather than later if you have not done so yet. Because if you do not, there will come a time when the fabric is no longer holding and that it will either let you go or you in your desperate attempt to unbuckle yourself will come crashing down. And there will be nobody to catch you. The hope, of our, the hope of this season is that that does not have to be you. So whether you are suffering from self-inflicted wounds or whether you're suffering because the broken world we live in has caught up with you and is about to devour you, the Lord will forgive the Lord will save. The Lord will come to those who hope and wait for him because of his redemption and his steadfast love. This morning, we will be celebrating our victor the victory over sin. We will celebrate that suffering, loneliness, and anguish are not the final reality that the powers of sickness and loneliness and death have their limitations. That above all, there is Jesus who dealt with this once and for all at a cross on Golgotha 2,000 years ago. You see, the reality is I might be uncomfortable preaching about suffering knowing very well that there is people here that have suffered a great deal more than I have.
But Jesus has been there. And Jesus has done that. He understands and he feels your pain. You see, suffering is nothing new to Jesus. We celebrate his victory in communion and in participating in the Lord's Supper by breaking bread and by drinking juice, a reminder of a broken body and spilled blood. You see, his cry on the cross, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me, echoes the desperation of Psalm 130. The anguish and the loneliness of the psalm writer is being repeated by Jesus while he's hanging on the cross. Jesus knows. At this church, we practice an open communion. You don't have to be a member of this church to participate in it. You just need to have a willingness to seek after Jesus. But this morning, in the spirit of Lent, and to avoid practicing a religion of cheap grace for which Bonhoeffer warns us, I want to remind you this morning to take communion in a worthy manner. You see, repentance and redemption are two parts of the same coin. God only saves those who know they cannot save themselves. If that is you this morning, I would invite you to take the cup and to take a piece of bread when the ushers are coming by. This morning, we will be taking communion all together. So if you're able, and I want to invite the ushers right now to come up and get the, the elements. If you're able, just hold on to them and wait till everybody has been served and then I will come by, and I will come back, and, I'll, and we will take communion together. I want to invite the worship team as well. I will serve the worship team.